nice segue there, Dan. This yes. is hell. My demon is... Oop, that's the outro. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime because this is hell and a great fortune is being made today in California off of the legal recreational marijuana industry. But like all of the agricultural sector, far too many of those profits are being captured by big corporations at the expense of generational, small, heritage, rural, family farmers. You may remember here in Illinois in the run-up to legalize recreational weed, many marijuana advocates, including myself, were warning about legalization and how legalizing it was not the same as decriminalizing it. That legalization brought in the law and regulators, who far too often benefit from big money rather than have any concern for those who have spent lifetimes, if not generations, cultivating herb. The small farmers, as always, are the ones left out when Big Ag steps in. Well, that's exactly what has happened with legal recreational marijuana in California, and it's likely for that to happen in a state near you, if not your state, when it comes to legal weed. With the high expense of licensing and the cost of fulfilling all the burdensome regulations, many growers are forced out of the legal trade and must return to the refuge of the more illicit trade or illicit market to avoid bankruptcy. To, it's sure, all this uh, legal weed brings in tons of tax revenue for the state, but in places like California, where Northern California's famed Emerald Triangle of Humboldt, Trinity, and Mendocino counties provided some of the planet's best herb dating back some 60 years now, those same growers who once contributed to schools and fire departments out of a sense of civic spirit are failing. Some have even become victims of suicide. We will find out exactly what can go wrong with legalizing it instead of decriminalizing it in a few when we speak with writer, performer, and podcaster Mary Jane Gibson, who posted the Rolling Stone article Inside California's Cannabis Crisis, Small Weed Farms Are Facing Extinction Under Oppressive Regulations, High Taxes, and a Statewide Collapse in Cannabis Pricing. Mary Jane co-hosts the Weed Plus Grub podcast with comedian Mike Glazer. You can find Weed Plus Grub at weedandgrub.com. Mary Jane is a former lifestyle, entertainment, and culture editor at High Times Complex magazine called Mary Jane, one of the 15 most powerful women in the weed industry. You can follow Mary Jane on Twitter at thisismaryjane underscore, and you can find out more about Mary Jane at thisismaryjane.com. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Dan Hill. Dan, what's new by you? Anything new in your world? Hi, Chuck. Hi. Not really. Um, I went to the eye doctor. Oh, really? What? Are you having a, a problem that is degenerating? Or, or do you have no. to get your prescription change? Just have insurance, and I didn't want to leave money on the table. <laughs> that's, that's the kind of eye doctor appointment I like to hear. Yep. Whenever I go to see the eye doctor, they always say... Uh, do you know that you have a really <laughs> bad problem with your vision? Like, cause yeah. I, the first time they ever see me, they always think it's amazing. And when I go, go to see my regular doctor now, I have to have, uh, they give me an eye test right at the beginning, and I always just say, look, it's E. <laughs> That's it. 
The rest of it is just a blur. That's funny. So what's new by me is it's Butchki Day, which I think is related to something religious that was imposed on me by my parents who insisted that myself and all my siblings be raised Roman Catholic. It's also Fat Tuesday, and my Fat Tuesday will get even fatter when I am done with today's show, because by the time I get home, there are supposed to be Butchki waiting for me. For those of you who are not familiar, and if you are in Chicago or my hometown of Detroit, you are probably all too aware of what Puczki are. But for those who are not, Puczki are uh, Polish deep-fried spheres of dough with sweet fruit, cream, or chocolate fillings, and usually covered in powdered sugar. That is, if you get the good ones. Sometimes they don't have the powdered sugar on top, and that's kind of a drag. It's a pastry especially made for the day before something called Ash Wednesday, I guess, and the beginning of the Catholic self-loathing practice of ridiculous tradition known as Lent. This is also the day when, uh, I think tomorrow is the day when Ann Arbor holds their annual hash bash because of Ash Wednesday. So I hope everybody who's listening in Ann Arbor enjoys tomorrow. But more important than it being Puchki Day, and if you don't like my pronunciation, too bad. I'm a non-Pole of Bohemian descent from Detroit, so screw you. Dan, What's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what conflict are you avoiding? (laughs) What conflict are you avoiding? Apparently, nobody's avoiding the conflict in Ukraine. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirts, tote bags, the face covering and the face mask, the coffee mug, the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century, flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie or toque if you prefer. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you'll see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can email it to e- to me at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. During this week's moment... Jeff coins the phrase feast or phantom. That's feast or phantom, not famine. Thanks to Nicholas A. of Rockport, Massachusetts, who went to thisishell.com, clicked on support, and got a This Is Hell trucking cap. Thanks also goes out to Ryan M. of Brooklyn, New York, who, like Nicholas, picked up a This Is Hell trucking industry professional cap, as it's known in its longer terminology. Ryan says, love y'all. Excited to show that love on my head. Be well. Don't let us get sick or old. Ryan, if you get sick or old, that's on you. I'm far too busy trying to keep myself from being sick and old, but that cap will definitely keep your head dry, so maybe that at least alleviates the sickness. Thanks, Nicholas and Ryan, for showing your support of This Is Hell. Dan will have more of your answers to this week's question from Hell Fowling. Our conversation with Mary Jane on what's gone horribly wrong with California's legal recreational marijuana laws. You can email us, message us via Facebook, or tweet at us on Twitter with your guest and or topic suggestions, or tell us 
Anything you'd like us to share on the show, and we will likely read it on air. Last week, we asked listeners if they would suggest writing on the situation in Ukraine, and we got an email from Daniel M. in Mississippi who writes, Dear Chuck and the This Is Hell family, hope this email finds you in good health. You were asking for suggestions on the current Ukraine-Russia conflict. Listening to Empire Files from Abby Martin, I was introduced to an anti-war socialist by the name of Brian Becker. I know nothing about his background, but the discussion on that specific topic rang true to me. Long-time listener, I really appreciate all the work y'all do. Recently able to support via the online store, slowly buying This Is Hell tote bags for everyone in my life. So all of his friends in Mississippi are going into grocery stores with red tote bags that have emblazoned on the side, This Is Hell. Daniel continues, maybe one of these days I'll get around to answering the question from hell. All the best from Mississippi, Daniel. So thanks, Daniel. I actually do have some background on Brian Becker. Brian Becker is apparently the host of something called the Socialist Program with Brian Becker, which you can find, unbelievably, at iHeartRadio, a place where I would have never thought in a million years you could find a show called the Socialist Program. He is also the national coordinator of the Answer Coalition. He's a founder of and a central organizer for the Party of Socialism and Liberation. And the commie has more Patreon patrons than we do. So, Daniel, we'll look into it, but you are not the only one who sent us a guest suggestion on Ukraine. Brad R. writes with his guest suggestion saying, Hey, Chuck, you asked for good writing on Ukraine. You should take a look at Richard Sakwa. That's S-A-K-W-A. He is professor of, professor of Russian and European politics at the University of Kent. He has written books about Russian, Central, and Eastern European communist and post-communist policies. For an in-depth background on recent developments in Russian-Ukrainian relations, I high, highly recommend his 2014 book, Frontline Ukraine, Crisis in the Borderlines. For more research, recent writings, here are a few articles. Brad then says links to... Articles Richard Sakwa has posted in The Spectator, including Ukraine isn't the West, America is failing to learn the lessons of the Cold War from January 28th, and another piece from January 25th titled Whisper It, But Putin Has a Point in Ukraine. And that's definitely something for whispering nowadays. We'll have more of your feedback following our conversation with Mary Jane on what's happening to small rural family growers in California following recreational marijuana becoming legal. We'll also have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is what conflict are you avoiding? What conflict are you avoiding? And we will be announcing who will be our next guest here on This Is Hell. Live from the United States where the law is far too often the crime, This is hell. There were such high hopes for legalized marijuana across the United States. People imprisoned for a practice that has taken place globally for thousands of years would finally no longer be or have criminalized lives. Not only that, but those who were working in the illegal market could finally come out of the shadows and ply their wares within the market, not only reaping in benefits and securing a livelihood that was anything but secure, but also contributing to local and state tax revenues and becoming contributing members to society, which some already were. 
But something went awry in the whole process, and Legal Weed turned out to have a whole bunch of problems for those who were already in the trade. Here to help us have a better understanding of what has happened with recreational marijuana legalization and what it might mean for you, even if you are not in California, writer, performer, and podcaster Mary Jane Gibson posted the Rolling Stone article, Inside California's Cannabis Crisis, Small Weed Farms Are Facing Extinction Under Oppressive Regulations, High Taxes, and a Statewide Collapse in Cannabis Pricing. Welcome to This Is Hell, Mary Jane. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being on our show. This is some great writing, and your earlier writing at Rolling Stone is also very incredible. So, I, or not incredible, very good. So I really <laughs> appreciate it. I never want to say incredible about nonfiction writing. I got to stop myself from saying that. Mary Jane co-hosts the Weed and Grub podcast with comedian Mike Glazer. You can find Weed and Grub at weedandgrub.com. Follow Mary Jane on Twitter at thisismaryjane underscore, and find out more about Mary Jane at thisismaryjane.com. MaryJane.com. So you write about going to the 18th annual Emerald Cup Harvest Ball in Santa Rosa, California, reporting that the blissful funk of a psychedelic soul band wafts from an outdoor stage as a chilly drizzle falls and chipper corporate promoters hand out branded rain slickers to shoppers. They're waiting to get into a makeshift dispensary for the popular cannabis brand cookies housed in a magnificent geodesic dome packed with display cases full of buds, concentrates, vape cartridges and seeds for sale in the indoor Puffco Pavilion nearby. Buyers are examining jars full of frosty mugs and haggling over cannabis seeds and plant cuttings, some of which are selling up to $1,000. There's weed anywhere and everywhere you look. California's enormous marijuana market, which reached an estimated $4.4 billion in sales in 2020, has seemingly reached peak cannabis capitalism, which is a phrase I love. Peak oil is the idea that when petroleum extraction is greater than any time in the past, that extraction will start to permanently decrease. It was an idea that many had in the very first few years of the century, with many who believed in peak oil, seeing it as an end of fossil fuels dominance in the energy sector. However, they did not foresee things like development of tar sands oil or fracking for methane that is natural gas. How do you see the current stage of marijuana production at what you call peak cannabis capitalism? Oh, such a good question. Um, You know, it's really that, you know, setting up the story with that opening at the Emerald Cup Harvest Ball and the sort of, you know, truly what looks to be thriving market with buyers examining, you know, as you said, all these frosty nugs and cannabis seeds and plant cuttings that are selling for up to $1,000. And, you know, this this seemingly, you know, bustling industry that is worth that huge amount of money. And, you know, the state has been filling its coffers uh, while many of the people who are creating the product that is going for sale are struggling. And so the business is uh, a huge booming market, but the people who are in the business are not making any money. And you write that the mood is decidedly different at the Emerald Cup uh, in a neighboring building where mom and pop cultivators were just accosted by uniformed agents from the Department of Cannabis Control. Moments before, they'd entered the room clad in olive green jackets and navy caps going around to each of the booths, which were given to 27 grows for free as part of the Cup's new small farms initiative, and insisted that they put away any actual marijuana on display. Since the small farms don't have retail licenses, which cost upwards of a 
$100,000 a year. Event organizers had told them they were permitted to show flower samples at their tables and direct buyers to a nearby dispensary booth for purchases. They were wrong. Was this misleading information intentional? And if not, why why mislead mom and pop grows into believing what they were doing would not attract law enforcement? Why did they think that it would not attract law enforcement? Well, I mean, that's the thing. So the Emerald Cup was, you know, originally founded to celebrate the NorCal harvest from these mom and pop cannabis farmers, you know, years and years ago, 18 years ago, long before Prop 64 legalized cannabis for adult use. You know, they were growing under Prop 215 for the most part or or completely outside regulations. They were growing medical cannabis and they were bringing it to be celebrated at the Emerald Cup and, you know, potentially win awards. The Emerald Cup Awards have been called the Academy Awards of Cannabis. So these mom and pop farms, have been bringing their cannabis to the Emerald Cup for for years now. But under the regulations of Prop 64, in order to sell direct to the consumer, you need to have this retail license, which costs, as you said, upwards of $100,000. And so many of these small farms aren't able to afford that license. They just have licenses to cultivate or in some cases distribute or manufacture. So without that retail license, these small farmers were given this free space at the Emerald Cup to bring their wares to show to buyers, but they weren't able to directly sell to buyers. So they were direct, they were told that they could display a personal ounce of their product in a locked jar for shoppers to simply look at and sniff, no touching or smoking or anything. And then they had to direct buyers to this sole point of sale, which was this one licensed dispensary that did have the retail license. And you know, however it worked out, the event organizers hadn't correctly communicated with the Department of Cannabis Control about how they thought this was going to work. And the Department of Cannabis Control showed up on the scene and said that displaying any cannabis without this retail license was a violation of laws. And they started shutting it down. And these mom and pop farmers, many of whom had driven you know, several hours from rural California to just have an opportunity to show their cannabis to buyers were in clear distress when I arrived saying, you know, how are we supposed to sell our product to someone who can't even see it? I can't show them a picture. Like, you know, we're going to display empty packaging to people who are here to actually buy craft cannabis. It's, it's just not going to work. So it was a really stressful situation for, for all of these growers from Humboldt and Mendocino and Lake counties. And, you know, they, they were just really feeling the strain of this overregulated situation where they're not able to take a crop and bring it to market. You know, it's cannabis is no longer considered a crop under Prop 64. It's an agricultural product. And so it's regulated in a different way than you would have you know, any other crop, tomatoes or artichokes or anything. And it's, it's, these regulations are just very difficult to abide by when you are, you know, a, a small mom and pop business. So the way that you just described it, though, it would seem like they were trying to do everything they could to satisfy the legal requirements for uh, displaying or selling uh, recreational marijuana. How misunderstood is the legalization of recreational marijuana, even by those who run the Emerald Cup or the people who are the growers in California? Right. I think that's the thing. It's, you know, regulations are so tricky and, and uh, you know, bureaucracy is always full of red tape and complications. And so, you know, the, the Emerald Cup organizers were surprised by the DCC, you know, what someone called a bureaucratic overreach. The farmers were totally baffled and shocked and the DCC were insisting that they were just there to do their job and that, you know, this this regulation that they needed to enforce was now state law. So it seemed like it was just this 
pretty, you know, fundamental miscommunication amongst all parties. Uh, everyone else at the cup who was selling retail marijuana had the license in place. For instance, you mentioned that magnificent geodesic dome that cookies had. They had the retail license in place. So they were able to display and sell marijuana direct to consumers. But these mom and pop businesses just didn't have the proper licensing. And so the miscommunication was stressful on all sides. They did come to an agreement. They did figure it out. And the DCC, um, they managed to draw up paperwork, essentially making all of the mom and pop farmers temporary employees of the licensed dispensary so that they could continue to display their cannabis. But, you know, for all of these growers who have been growing in some cases for 30 or 40 years, they just were, you know, they were not, I don't want to use the word hysterical, but, you know, in, in many cases they were, you know, just they couldn't believe it was happening. So prior to this, you were saying that the Emerald Cup has been going on since 2018, even before medical marijuana was legalized. Oh, since 2003, yeah. For 2003. So uh, was the Emerald Cup ever raided in the past? Was that always a site of uh, law enforcement? You know, I don't know. I'd have to direct you to Emerald Cup organizers to answer that question. I'm not sure of the history of raids, but I do know that they have existed as a as an organ, a huge organization that has hosted highly successful events um, and competitions. And, you know, they're lauded in the cannabis industry and known outside the cannabis industry as the sort of gold standard competition. So I think that this new sort of crackdown by the DCC at the event came as a surprise for sure. And you also point out that farmers, most of whom had traveled long distances from rural northern California to show their weed to buyers, were baffled by the agent's demands. Then you quote Nevada County grower Donna Panza asking, how are you supposed to sell a product that you can't display, as you were pointing out? People want to look at it. They don't want to smell it. Or are we supposed to show them a photograph? So to what extent do you think recreational advocates understood that legalization would mean corporatization, that this would not help out the vast majority of already existing small family farmer growers? Well, I think it was a concern with a lot of uh, people when Prop 64 came into play. Um, You know, certainly I think there were uh, people who worked on Prop 64 who really tried to ensure that there were uh, provisions in place to protect those small growers. And they encouraged the small growers to come on board to support the measure because they knew that it wouldn't pass without the support of these rural farmers. So when the architects of Prop 64 were working to bring the law into place, they, they had small growers in mind, certainly. I don't think that anyone could have foreseen the overregulation of the industry to this degree, uh, you know, at every turn at us at not only a state level, but also at a county level. I mean, many of these growers are operating in counties that are imposing very severe restrictions that they have to get through before they even deal with state licenses. So in in every way, sort of in every direction you turn there, there's another regulation that you're looking at as as a as a legal grower under Prop 64. And it's it's really tough. So I think recreational consumers, for the most part, don't actually know about it. I mean, I think in most cases when you're consuming any kind of product, it's pretty rare for you to follow the follow the ch- chain or the thread all the way up to find out you know where your produce is coming from or how your wine is produced. So I think a lot of people don't really know about the California cannabis situation. Um, and it was certainly, I, I learned so much when I visited an Emerald Cup in Mendocino to really look into it. 
You write that the struggle between small farmers and corporate cannabis can be traced back to when California voters approved Proposition 64 in 2016. Since the 1960s, cannabis farming has been the economic livelihood and lifeblood of many Northern California communities, especially those in the counties of Humboldt, Trinity, and Mendocino counties, collectively known as the Emerald Triangle. Small farmers were given a measure of protection when the Compassionate Care Act, or 2015, legalized medical marijuana in 1996, giving rise to a robust, entrenched gray market that lasted for decades. So why did medical marijuana legislation protect small growers that local economies depended upon, but when recreational laws came in, they didn't protect them as much? Right. So Prop 215 was a really interesting law because it basically afforded a measure of protection to these small farmers who wanted to grow medical cannabis for collectives that popped up all over the state to, you know, uh, really serve consumers who were, you know, the first uh, medical marijuana patients in the country in California. And it, you know, created a measure of protection for them to grow and distribute and share their cannabis freely, but it didn't create a regulatory body to oversee see the market. So it was this sort of interesting gray market where, you know, there were in some cases taxes imposed and state, state uh, local communities would levy taxes and so on. But there weren't there wasn't a huge regulatory body that you had to answer to as a grower. There weren't these insane sort of, you know, from every level from the county on up regulations that you had to um, submit to. So under Prop 215, the market really thrived. And, you know, when I moved to California in 20. 15, right before Prop 64 was approved in 2016, it was a really booming, rich market with all sorts of uh, products from edibles to flour to concentrates. It was a, you know, a lot going on here. It was a really exciting time. And when Prop 64 took uh, hold on January 1st, 2018, a lot of those businesses weren't able to get licenses. And so they had to close. And then they were given, there was a grace period of six months from January to July of 2018 for businesses who had been Prop 215 businesses to come online as Prop 64 businesses. And the ones that weren't able to get those licenses folded. And it's been a really pretty rough time for businesses. There were, I think, 10,000 small farmers when Prop 64 initially started. And I think they're down to about 2,000 small farmers now. And many of the farmers that I spoke to say they're not going to make it through the year. So now, you know, this is just anecdotal, but it's my understanding from people I know who went out to California in that period before there was recreational marijuana, but when there was medical marijuana legalized within California, from people I've talked to, they said at that time, during that little period of time, it was really easy to get a medical marijuana card. Is that the case? And if it was so easy to get a medical marijuana card, why go to the process of legalizing recreational if people were getting good access to really good California herb? Right. That's such a good question. I, you know, when I arrived in California in 2015, I uh, was directed to get a medical card myself. And I did have the experience of getting a medical card and it wasn't uh, very difficult. And they were, you know, fairly uh, interested in in getting medical patients access. Let's just say it that way. Um, But, you know, Prop 64 was designed for full adult use, anyone over 21 without a uh, without a medical recommendation. And the um, 
promise was that, you know, it would just be fully available, lab tested, safe and fair access for anyone over the age of 21, that you didn't need to be a patient. So I think that, you know, part of part of it was that the, the medical cannabis market was working, but this was, I think, maybe going to be a bit of a blueprint for what ultimately would take hold federally, which would just be that, you know, you don't have to necessarily call yourself a patient and go to a doctor to be able to have access to this plant, which is something that, you know, I think everyone hopes at some point will be freely available to everyone legally and safely. You also point out that protecting existing growers was a pillar of Proposition 64, which legalized uh, recreational marijuana for adult use, worried that the um, measure would fall without the support of rural farmers. Legalization advocates included a provision to encourage legacy growers to join the legal market, promising that no cultivation site would be larger than one acre until 2023. This supposedly meant that small farms wouldn't face competition from multi-acre mega farms for at least five years. You then quote, Emerald Cup founder Tim Blake saying Prop 64 was built to protect the small farmers so that there wouldn't be an overabundance of cannabis. They would have a chance to evolve when it comes to recreational. Why were they seemingly not as interested in getting the support of small rural farmers? Well, I think they were. I think I think that's that's a bit of a, a sort of a misunderstanding. I think that, you know, the small farmers were under Prop 64 expected to be able to continue what they had always been doing, which was to produce incredible craft cannabis, just as small farmers are expected to be able to continue in competition with big agriculture and continue to bring their wares to the farmer's market while big agriculture supplies the, you know, the food industry. So I think that it was expected that the small farmers would be able to continue what they do. It wasn't designed to extinguish them. It was really designed to extinguish the illicit market, which in many cases can offer untested product, which can be dangerous because of, you know, growing practices or contaminants and and also just to honestly, you know, end the practice of imprisoning people for the use and distribution of the plant. So that was a huge part of Prop 64 as well, was to make sure that it would uh, end imprisoning people and incarcerating people for cannabis. So the the law wasn't designed to stop small weed farmers from growing and just hand it over to corporate weed. It was it was thought that they would be able to continue what they're doing. It just hasn't proven to be the case. And you write that in, uh, tw- in November 2017, two months before Prop 64 was set to go into effect, cannabis industry lobbyists persuaded the California Department of Food and Agriculture to change the provision. The CDFA removed the limit on the number of quarter acre licenses available to individuals or to companies, creating a loophole that opened the door to multi-acre farms through bundling or stacking licenses. This meant that a business that could afford to purchase multiple licenses could grow exponentially more cannabis than a small farm. The protective period that would have ostensibly allowed small farms to get a foothold in the legal market before facing off with big agriculture was gone. So was there an uprising at the time against the CDFA's loophole, or was this a kind of of dead-of-the-night thing where the public was not informed or simply did not notice? Right. So sort of both. Um, it was under cover of darkness a little bit. It did happen very quickly and it didn't get a lot of media coverage. I certainly, you know, I read a couple of stories about it, but it wasn't widely reported. And Prop 64 was voter approved by, you know, 57% of voters. So removing that cap was really going against the will of the voters. Um, 
And people took notice, of course. Uh, there were some advocacy groups who rallied uh, and got the support of State Senator McGuire. Uh, the California Growers Association filed a lawsuit against the state. There were Senate hearings held. Ultimately, the, the provision didn't wasn't reinstated. Uh, and so the law went into effect without that one acre cap in place, which was so unfortunate because, you know, these small farmers had been promised that they would have five years until 2023 before marijuana businesses would be able to stack licenses and grow more than one acre of cannabis. So they didn't get that protective period. And they really feel overall, I mean, most of the small farmers that I spoke to and a lot of the advocacy groups who represent these small farmers all point to the lifting of that one acre cap as the beginning of the collapse of their industry. There are so many other factors at play. And I should note that since the article published, I've also spoken to several people who are business leaders with big companies, and they say that they are also suffering. So it's sort of indicative of a, a statewide collapse in the market. And it's not just the small farmers that are suffering. The whole, the whole industry is really collapsing because of excessive taxation and an overabundance of cannabis that's been grown because there were just too many licenses given out. But it's certainly the small farmers that are losing everything. You write that one large-scale cultivator, Flourish, spent more than $300,000 to lobby lawmakers through a political consulting firm called California Strategies, according to a report from the cannabis website Leafly. At the time, Flourish was under the leadership of Steve D'Angelo. He was also executive director of Harborside, one of the first licensed dispensaries. D'Angelo also co-founded the country's first cannabis testing lab, Steep Hill, the cannabis investment firm ArcView and the nonprofit Last Prisoner Project. He is a highly visible, somewhat controversial individual, a charismatic activist who's known as the father of legal cannabis and bills himself as a champion of marijuana accessibility and safety, while also making a healthy profit. As one activist describes it, he has the ability ability to piss off lots of cannabis subgroups simultaneously. That's mm. that's quite an ability, by the way. I'd put that on my <laughs> resume. How easy was it for D'Angelo to change the law in order to profit while undermining the ability of small growers who had depended upon that income for years? Was that an easy task? So I don't think Steve D'Angelo changed the law at all. I think Steve D'Angelo was lobbying lobbying for larger grows. I, I mean, he in, in his own words, when I reached out to Steve D'Angelo for comment, he said that he wasn't interested in the one acre cap being lifted for big business to come in. He just wanted to ensure that the price of cannabis would stay down for medical patients because he was the executive director of Harborside Dispensary, which he'd founded. And he was really interested in keeping the price of cannabis low. So he's become this controversial figure because many because he is highly visible and many people in the industry do point to his lobbying for larger grows as you know the sort of point person he's he's the sort of most visible person as a lobbyist at that time for larger grows so i think he he takes he shoulders some of the sort of like the the visibility issue and therefore is blamed by a lot of people but it was really a, a network of lobbyists and and many people at play who haven't been named and worked through these companies like California Strategies and so on to remain nameless. So the one acre cap being lifted was certainly the issue that many growers point to, but I don't think that Steve D'Angelo can actually be blamed for the change in the law entirely. He's just a very visible person who I think because he is a dispensary owner and, and an advocate, and he spent time in prison for uh, cannabis, but he is also a businessman and he owns a cannabis investment firm that he's just, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of facets and it's, it's difficult to sort of, um, figure out exactly what's going on. Sometimes people like to make things very black and white, obviously. 
And you quote a 2017 essay for Leafly where D'Angelo writes that propping up California small-scale cannabis farmers with regulations that forbid efficient-scale cultivation hurts consumers. Did this help healthy competition? Did that kind of uh, operation where he was trying to help out small or trying to at least, uh, you know, maybe rein in small-scale cannabis farmers, did that help healthy competition? Did that help consumers? Right. That's the thing. I think, you know, it, it, we've got the worst of both worlds in, in a world where cannabis prices, the wholesale price of cannabis has completely tanked and farmers are losing everything. And the price for consumers is still incredibly high because of really high taxes. So we've got, you know, truly a two pronged disaster. <laughs> Which is the worst part of this whole uh, situation, that it is a two-pronged disaster. We are speaking with writer, performer, and podcaster Mary Jane Gibson, who posted the Rolling Stone article, Inside California California's Cannabis Crisis. Mary Jane hosts the Weed and Grub podcast with comedian Mike Glazer. You can find Weed and Grub at weedandgrub.com. Follow Mary Jane on Twitter at thisismaryjane underscore. Find out more about Mary Jane at thisismaryjane.com. So is, well, you write that when asked to comment, D'Angelo said through a representative that he stands by this push for legalization that prioritizes affordability for the consumer over protection for small farms. He says that my primary allegiance has always been to the people who use and need cannabis, which means the product must be safe and tested as well as affordable, a primary objective of Prop 64, the recreational marijuana legislation. So is not protecting small farms farmers keeping prices down in California? No, (laughs) not at all. Uh, The price, the price of cannabis in California is, you know, for for me to go into a dispensary and buy uh, an eighth of weed, I'm paying taxes. There are four levels of tax. There's a distribution tax, a cultivation tax, and then local and state excise taxes and a consumer tax. So you know, it's 35% tax when I, when I buy an eighth of wheat at the dispensary. So no prices have not been kept down. And there was a promise a provision in prop 64 for medical cannabis patients that the taxes would not apply to them and that they would be able to still purchase their medicine at the same price that they had always been paying at an affordable price. And that as also has not happened. Um, I just walked by a dispensary the other day here in West Hollywood, where I live, that said, we do not accept medical cannabis cards. They straight up just deny medical cannabis patients access to their medicine. It's just really unfortunate. I think Prop 64 uh, has been surprising in how many ways that it's, it's really messed things up. <laughs> Because medical marijuana patients get their medical marijuana at a discounted rate over recreational, correct? That's right. Well, they're not. They are uh, exempt from taxes from the from the Prop 64 uh, adult use taxes. That's just amazing to me that they would close off access to medical marijuana patients. When I have been in uh, dispensaries in, for instance, Michigan, uh, they will have a room where there's medical marijuana and then they'll have a room where there's recreational marijuana. And there's always seems to be more people in the medical marijuana. These are often low income parts of Michigan, but there's Mm -hmm. often more people in the medical marijuana section than the recreational marijuana section. You write at this point, there are seemingly endless elements contributing to what many in the industry call an extinction level event for small business 
business is a thriving illicit market, diverting customers, exorbitant licensing and permitting fees, a lack of access to banking, navigating red tape with county and state agencies like the California Department of Food and Agriculture. So a, a thriving illicit market, diverting customers. But wasn't legalization of recreational weed supposed to end the illicit market? Why hasn't recreational uh, marijuana undermined California's illicit market? Right. I, I, I wish I were expert enough to just, you know, sort of wrap it up nicely for you. But basically, my understanding of it is that California cannabis cultivators grew three times more legal cannabis last year than the legal market could tolerate. And so the product that they're not able to sell on the legal market just gets backdoored to the illicit market. And the illicit market is thriving because of these high prices. Consumers just don't want to pay these incredibly high prices that are, um, you know, from from taxed and regulated cannabis. And they're always just going to turn to their neighbor who's been growing the best weed they've known for the past 40 years. Why would they stop growing or buying that now? So Prop 64 really was designed to stamp out the illicit market. And instead, the illicit market is truly thriving. It's doing really well. And it's um, it's hard to hard to see how it will be contained without the a real restructuring of Prop 64, starting with the elimination of the cultivation tax, which is the biggest burden on the farmers and growers. And that's what most advocates are uh, agitating for right now is, you know, from business industry leaders on down to uh, groups like the Origins Council, which represents about 900 growers in um, the Emerald Triangle. They're all just calling for the elimination of the cultivation tax, which is cannabis is the only uh, agricultural product in the world, I was told, that is taxed at the farm before it leaves the farm. There's a pound, uh, a price per pound levied. It's currently $161 before the product is even sold per pound. That's just incredible. So it, in my own experience, the illicit market is thriving in places like here in Chicago, major cities. But if you drive an hour or two out of town, and especially if you go to states whose regulations are not as cost intensive and burdensome in Illinois, as they are in Illinois, you can find bud that's far more aesthetically pleasing to the eye and at about half the price. Do you know, is that also the case in California that illicit markets thrive in some areas due to the high costs of licensing and regulation when it doesn't also, when it doesn't thrive in other areas? Absolutely. I, I mean, you know, and it certainly depends on where you go. I'm in Los Angeles. And so there are a lot of um, indoor grows here that are producing some of the most incredible cannabis you'll ever see. It's a, you know, hydroponic indoor, you know, top genetics cannabis that's grown uh, on to be sold on the illicit market. They're not interested in trying to come into the regulated market because of all the uh, hoops that you have to jump through, not only getting the licenses, but then the permitting fees and reporting to various state agencies and then paying all the taxes and, you know, if they've been growing great cannabis for decades uh, outside the regulated market, and they're not going to stop now. So uh, the indoor cannabis scene in many places is uh, thriving. And then in places like, you know, the Emerald Triangle, a lot of these farmers grew in the Emerald Triangle because they could hide from the authorities. And, you know, they got really good at it in these rural pockets of Humboldt and Mendocino. And uh, I think many of them have decided to continue to do so because they, they tried their best to come into the regulated market. I spoke to one grower who had been trying to get a license for over a year. He's been growing and he's really good at what he does. And he was just, you know, 
giving up. He was like, I, there's nothing I can do. I've been trying for a year. I've gotten all of my paperwork pushed through. He was a social equity applicant, meaning that he should have first crack at getting a license. And he just couldn't get the paperwork. And he was basically throwing up his hands and saying, I've done everything I can. I'm just going to go back to growing uh, for the traditional market. You write that Janine Coleman, founder and executive director of the nonprofit cannabis advocacy organization Origins Council, says the main factor behind the market collapse is the lifting of the one acre licensing cap. And you cite Coleman saying the results completely undermine the stated intention of the people's voter proposition. The overproduction issue that we are currently facing and the market collapse of the wholesale price is directly because of those actions. Now, I've heard the same thing that is happening with inflation in the non-marijuana market is happening in the legal weed sector and that is inflation but like in the non-weed market that is driven not by the costs for producers but the greed of retailers that the inflation in the weed market is not trickling down to producers or caused by their higher costs to produce is a similar thing happening in california that corporations that can afford retail licenses are increasing prices while producers are not increasing their profits you know, I'm not sure about that. I wasn't uh, focusing on the corporate bigger grows as much. So I can't really speak to the financial dynamics of corporate cannabis in California right now. I do know that nobody's making money. I was on a call where uh, industry leaders had written an open letter to Gavin Newsom calling for tax restructuring in order to save California cannabis. And they, you know, even at the highest levels of you know cannabis CEOs of big companies were saying, we can't make money. We're firing half of our staff. We are not able to turn a profit. We're sitting on product that we're not able to sell. So I do know that, you know, industry leaders at uh, corporate cannabis uh, businesses are saying that they are also suffering. And I don't believe, I mean, I certainly haven't heard that they are uh, trying to increase profits while other people are suffering. I think they're actually trying to, in an interesting sort of uh, what my friend David Bienenstock calls a bong fellows moment, join together with small farmers. These, uh, that the open letter to Gavin Newsom that I spoke of was signed by over 30 CEOs and business leaders, including Steve D'Angelo, calling for attention to the California crisis and calling for attention to small farmers who are suffering in addition to the California cannabis industry at large. So I think everyone is really trying to come together. It's not really a moment of us against the small farmers or I think small farmers definitely feel squeezed out. And so they might feel like it's them against corporate weed, but corporate cannabis uh, business folks don't feel like it's them against the small farmers at all. I know that. So prior to this uh, bong fellows moment, uh, do you believe the goal all along was to favor corporate big dollar industry? Was that the only way, I guess there's a better way for me to ask this, was that the only way that this legislation would have ever passed? Otherwise, would corporate money have done everything it could to stop legal recreational marijuana in California? Was the, was legal recreational marijuana in California, did it pass because big money knew that they would get a taste? Um, I think that that's definitely a question for uh, someone who knows more than I do about uh, business in general. I'm not a business reporter so much, so I don't know the answer to that. I would say that just anecdotally, that that's definitely how people feel. Uh, you know, there was a um, one of the big investors uh, in the um 
Yes on 64 campaign was the founder of Napster, Sean Parker, who was a former Facebook president, and he contributed 8.6 million to Yes on 4. Uh, and I certainly think that as an investor, he saw an opportunity. So I think that, yes, it was certainly there was a lot of attention from big money and big business. And, you know, there's a lot of foreign investment that has poured into California in since uh, Prop 64 legalized weed for adult use. I, I wrote another piece about a Russian oligarch who actually came and poured 164 million dollars of his personal fortune into cannabis thinking that he was he was going to profit so there's of course been a lot of interest from uh investors and business leaders and people like sean parker uh so that that's as much as i know about it though i'm really not a business reporter so i can't speak authoritatively on it not to get distracted by your article back in august but why didn't that 164 million dollar investment work for the russian oligarch so that was a piece that uh, published on Rolling Stone. It's called The Oligarch and the Marijuana Fund. And it was just a really interesting case of uh, terrible mismanagement. He entrusted his fortune to these two young tech bros who were really excited to build a vertically integrated cannabis company. But nobody knew anything about cannabis. And uh, and so it just it really blew up in their faces. And um, the, the very expensive dispensary that they built, which is just a few blocks from my house, is now shuttered and the company is defunct. And the oligarch is dead. Not knowing anything about cannabis can be an obstacle to running a cannabis business, you would think. So you That's right. <laughs> you're right that Jacob Lawrence is an activist who grew up on a legacy farm in Lake County, California, a large, voluble man in his 30s who goes by the name Big Jake. He now runs a nonprofit called MedVets that supplies military veterans with medical cannabis. He isn't a veteran himself, but he's passionate about supplying free medicine to those in need and is disdainful of corporate interests. So with California's legal recreational weed legislation are corporations or is that legislation, I should say, interfering with getting free medicine to veterans? I believe so. Yeah. I I, I mean, Big Jake was really um, sort of adamant that he was going to get free medicine to his uh, veterans no matter what, and that sometimes he would turn to the traditional market to do so. Uh, but yes, legal Prop 64 cannabis is not working for medical patients, was my understanding. As far as uh, Big Jake was telling me, he was saying that, you know, a lot of uh, his his veterans were just having to turn to the traditional market and he was going to supply them no matter what. And that Prop 64 was encouraging a lot of people to go back to the legacy lifestyle, that sort of, you know, unregulated or Prop 215 medical marijuana uh, market, which is, you know, really designed for patients to get medical cannabis to the people who need it most. You also point out that when he was growing up, Jacob Medvets says the NorCal cannabis community was entirely made up of small farms and families who lived off grid for decades. Those farmers put their income back into the local economy, buying clothes and home goods, shopping at the hardware store and eating in local restaurants. You then quote Jake saying, without regulation, we started schools, we started fire departments, we started things and gave back without anyone telling us to. So to what extent does legalized marijuana undermine the ability of farmers to contribute to local infrastructure. After all, the idea was that recreational weed taxes would help pay for things like social services and infrastructure. So how much does legalized marijuana undermine the ability of farmers to contribute to local infrastructure and communities? Well, I certainly think that it wasn't designed to undermine it at all. As you say, it was designed to support communities um, who had been growing for decades. But, you know, what's happened is, you know, much like with Amazon taking away 
businesses from, you know, business from small places. Uh, the the same thing is happening with, you know, larger grows and corporate cannabis who are growing these sort of multi-acre uh, operations in places like San Luis Obispo or Santa Barbara. And they roll to package these huge amounts of weed and send them out for sale. And people are buying that rather than supporting the, you know, craft farmer who's got a 10,000 foot grow in central Mendocino. And so as people are purchasing this big weed, they are not, you know, giving money back to those small farmers who are then spending money in their communities and the infrastructure is crumbling. So it's just really, you know, it's, it's, it's the same model as any of the, you know, the big corporate businesses like Amazon coming in or, or, you know, I cited Starbucks at one point in a conversation with a friend where it's like, you know, it doesn't seem like a bad thing. A, a town can hold a Starbucks and a mom and pop coffee shop. But the thing is the Starbucks is able to undercut the mom and pop coffee shop and force it out of business and then take over. And so I think a lot of people are worried that that's what's happening with corporate weed, that many of these companies can just stay afloat until they're the only one left. Yeah, and I think that's the fascinating part about your writing, that so often what you, when you're discussing uh, legalized recreational marijuana, it's the same implications when it comes to other agricultural products, or not just agricultural products, in other sectors as well. Is, is California cracking down on the illicit market any more or less than the state did prior to legal weed? Uh, it's interesting. I don't know the statistics right now, but I do know that there was a bill that was just introduced by an assemblyman who wanted to re-felonize growing cannabis uh, without a license, which I think to anyone who is, a, you know, a, a, an advocate for legal cannabis or an advocate for cannabis at all, you know, it sent a chill up our spine. You're saying that now you've legalized and regulated cannabis. So only with the growing within that state sanctioned structure you can have your cannabis. And if you're trying to grow outside that, you're going to send me to, back to prison. I mean, the whole point of, you know, a big point of Prop 64 was obviously to end uh, people going to prison for drugs. So, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I've forgotten your original question, but we all got very uh, concerned about the idea that that bill would be reintroduced. And you were asking about um, stamping out the illicit market. I think that that's what a lot of people are really concerned about. But honestly, right now, it feels like it's too big to police. So state agents are really overwhelmed because they are trying to sort of uh, govern this new body of legal cannabis while also having to deal with this thriving illicit traditional market. So it's, it's a lot. It's, you know, I actually spoke to one pair of growers who had a lot of sympathy for the state regulators and agencies. They're like, they're trying to do what amounts to an impossible task. Um, and it's just, you know, it's, it, it's a lot. I mean, California is a huge, huge state with, uh, you know, so much going on from North to South, different markets and counties and, you know, economics at play. And it's, it's crazy. So how much of a threat is legal recreational marijuana legislation to higher quality, as it stands today, to higher quality boutique, if you will, marijuana? What impact has legal weed had on the quality of bud in California? Oh, it depends on who you ask. I mean, I think your average consumer wouldn't see an effect. I think your average consumer visiting a dispensary is really excited about having access to legal cannabis and they see that there's plenty on display. But, you know, the craft cannabis farmers who grow proprietary genetics in many cases, I mean, there are some of these farmers who have strains that are only grown on that farm and it just belongs to their family. 
And as those farms disappear, it is having an effect, you know, because the bigger grows are only going to grow what people want. They're just going to grow the popular strain. They're going to, you know, they see that Leafly um, proclaimed that Docido is the strain of the year. So we're all just going to be flooded with Docido. And instead of being able to go to the dispensary and select from, you know, a hundred cool strains and all with different effects and terpene profiles. And, you know, it's really fun to nerd out when you get presented with all these different kinds of cannabis and you go in and you only have access to the three strains that were sort of the most exciting to these big grows. And so they've just pumped out peanut butter breath and do-si-do and runts. It's, uh, it definitely has had an effect. And I, I see it when I go into a dispensary. I don't know if the average consumer would necessarily know. And then obviously anyone who's really a cannabis enthusiast has, has remarked on it and is very sad about it. And they, they, in a lot of cases, are turning to the illicit market as well to get some of the genetics that they miss that just haven't come online in the regulated market. That's interesting that uh, corporatization leads to generic products. I never really considered that before. You write grower John Casali of Huckleberry Farms, whose family has been growing in Humboldt County since the 1970s, says that he's barely breaking even with sales for this year's harvest at $500 a pound. Casali explains to you that... That includes uh, a $150 trim fee, the cultivation tax, the waterboard fee, the fish and game fee, the county fee, and the permitting fee. You add some of his neighbors need $700 a pound to break even, Casali said, so they're losing $200 a pound, quote, and that can only happen for a very short period of time before you're completely out of business. So do you think if Californians had known this would be the outcome, that they would have voted for legal recreational marijuana legislation as it stood with Prop 64? Um, I, I don't think anyone wanted this. I don't think any Californians would have voted for it if they had known that it would put these craft cannabis farmers uh, effectively, many of them out of business. But, you know, I really don't think anyone anticipated this is what would happen. There's a similar situation happening in Oregon right now as well. It's certainly not just California. I think it's pretty common when, you know, regulators bring something online and, and, you know, this corporate, uh, licenses are, are, doing battle with the small farmers, there's just, you know, this overabundance of cannabis that's grown that oversaturates the market and drops the price of wholesale cannabis, putting people out of businesses is a a fairly, uh, I mean, it's happening in in more places than just here. So no, I don't think that California voters would have approved it, but also I I certainly think that they really thought that they were doing the right thing. They thought that, you know, places like the Emerald Triangle would become the new Napa Valley of weed. They thought that we would have uh, maybe, you know, direct sales to consumers. I think that I I certainly went, before I was aware of uh, all of the pitfalls of Prop 64, I thought that I was going to be able to go to the farmer's market and pick up some Brussels sprouts and and an eighth of great outdoor sun grown. And that is certainly not what's happened. (laughs) Damn it. Damn it. I was so hoping it was. I already had excuses to go visit my brother in California. So you're right. Brandy Moulton has been cultivating in Mendocino for 24 years under the current licensing structure. structure. She's set to lose her indoor cultivation business due to a uh, provision known as the Sunset Clause, which was established by county supervisors in 2017 in an effort to push growers out of residential neighborhoods. Moulton unsuccessfully applied to the County Planning Commission to create a zone to offset the clause. She then tried to relocate her dispensary to the city of Fort Bragg, where she has been repeatedly rejected by the Planning Commission and City Council, despite having support from local and city staffers. So to you, what explains that disconnect between the planning commission, city council and locals and city staffers? What explains their differing or even maybe competing interests? 
Hard to know. And when you speak to people like Brandy Moulton, who's an incredible grower and business owner, they are sort of like restrained and a little bit circumspect because they are still trying to work with regulators. So they don't really want to go on the record as saying, you know, this person is the problem and this is why. But my understanding is that, you know, like, you know, any any sort of political workings or any bureaucracy, there are always uh, conflicting interests at play. And some of those interests have to do with business and, uh, you know, perhaps the people who are not supporting her are people who have um, their own businesses. It, it, it was a little bit hard to parse exactly who was against her and who was supporting her, but she did have support of a lot of the locals. I mean, she's a well-known, well-respected business person and grower in her county, and she's being pushed out, and it's just awful. She's fought every step of the way, and she's probably going to lose that business. You write that according to the group of CEOs and business owners who signed the letter to Governor Newsom to cut cultivation tax, the industry is lucrative for the state. California collected about $817 million in adult-use marijuana tax revenue during the 2020-2021 fiscal year, but not for cannabis businesses. So does that disincentivize California in any way from changing anything related to legal recreational marijuana legislation? Uh, does what dis- disincentivize them? Uh, the fact that they're collecting so much money in tax revenue from the way that legislation stands now. Right. It's interesting. I think that, you know, Governor Newsom has sort of publicly declared his support for reexamining uh, the taxes. But of course, when the money is pouring into the state coffers, why why would you reexamine that? You know, it's, it's great for you. But, you know, truly, I think with with the way the industry is struggling, with the publicity that the situation is gaining, with the small farmers rallying on the steps of the state capitol and business leaders writing open letters saying, you're killing us, we're dying, you're crushing the legend legendary cannabis scene that is responsible for arguably all great weed in the United States. You're regulating and taxing us out of existence. You got to stop. So I think that I, I hope my hope is that Newsom's administration will listen because the situation is truly so dire. There is no one that I've spoken to in any position in the cannabis industry who feels like things are going well. It's, it's, it's really tricky. And so I think that um, Governor Newsom will hopefully have to pay attention. So how far would the end of the cultivation tax go toward protecting small rural family farmers? And what impact would that have on taxes raised by the state? Because I'm wondering what is more important to the state, taxes or saving family farmers? Hopefully saving family farmers. I mean, I think, you know, turning turning weed into a commodity for everyone to make money off of was really never the point of legalizing cannabis for, for most of us as, as voters and as growers. That certainly wasn't what anyone had hoped for. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm just hoping that the... Uh, the changes will happen because the industry is doomed without it. There's there's nothing to be done unless the cultivation tax is the first step. So, you know, Janine Coleman, who's the head of the Origins Council, and I, I quote her in the article, she rallied on the steps of Sacramento with a group called Supernova Women, which is uh, out of Oakland, is a nonprofit, and they're representing um, social equity license holders and small farmers. And they basically just all said, you know, unless this cultivation tax is lifted, 
you're going to kill the industry. This, this is, this is what needs to happen. And that's just the, the first step. Then there will have to be a restructuring of other parts of the industry, but they, they are all pointing to that as the first step to remove the cultivation tax as the first thing to give these farmers relief so that they can just at least get back to growing and hopefully paying their bills. And then, you know, slowly, uh, hopefully the industry will self-regulate to some degree and, and everyone will be able to, at the very least, just break even and, you know, start paying themselves again. I've got one last question for you, Mary Jane. We've been speaking with writer, performer, and podcaster Mary Jane Gibson, who posted the Rolling Stone article, Inside California's Cannabis Crisis. Mary Jane co-hosts the Weed and Grub podcast with comedian Mike Glazer. You can find Weed and Grub at weedandgrub.com. Follow Mary Jane on Twitter at thisismaryjane underscore. Find out more about Mary Jane at thisismaryjane.com. Our final question for each and every one of our guests, I promise, is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask you may hate to answer (laughs) or our audience may hate your response so there's two things there's the legalization or there's legality and there's justice there's law and there is justice how much does legal weed in california as the legislation stands today mean justice for small rural family heritage farmers I don't think it means justice for them at all as they, as it currently stands. Um, but we can't go back. We voted it in. And so now it's just a mean, you know, we have to fix it. I don't think that under the current structure, there's any justice for small farms with Prop 64. Um, I had certainly in all of the growers and folks that I spoke to, uh, none of them said that things were going well. So yeah, in a nutshell, it's not working at all, and there is no justice in there, but we are hopeful looking forward that new legislation will be passed to address the issues in this current bill. And as I know for a fact that there are small growers throughout the Midwest who are listening to our show right now, I think that they would completely agree with you from what I have seen and heard from them. Thank you so much, Mary Jane, for being on our show. I really appreciate it, and your writing is exceptional at Rolling Stone, and I want everybody to make sure that they go and check out your article about the Russian oligarch from back in August and your other writing on um, legal recreational marijuana. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to speak with you. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Me Wrong. This is Hell. Dan, I have a question for you about that interview. How many times did you hear a lighter spark during that conversation? (laughs) Could have just been a pen. It could have been a pen. Let's say it was a pen and not a lighter pen. If that conversation with Mary Jane on the problems with California's legal recreational marijuana legislation was in some way enlightening or made you realize that, yes, this really is hell, show your appreciation by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell or go to thisishell.com and click on support. And see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks for your support. Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And tell us how our listening audience is responding. This week's question from hell is, what conflict are you avoiding? All right. No W said, none. And why should I? <laughs> Neil C. That's said, very brave of him, by the way. Confrontational. All right. Neil C. says cremation versus burial, or maybe a better way of saying it, Republican versus Democrat. (laughs) Wow. Bowdoin G. said realizing how many similarities exist between the Russian imperial spirit and American manifest destiny. (laughs) Nice. John C. 
says, I'm avoiding the Kanye and Kim divorce, even though it's the only conflict that really matters. Wow. And finally, jo Joe K says, all of them staying in my lane. I understand. That would be a very good move to make at this point in time. Again, this week's question from hell is, what conflict are you avoiding? What conflict are you avoiding? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer. By the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. During this week's moment of truth, Jeff coins the phrase feast or phantom. Feast or phantom, not feast or famine. We will have the rest of your answers to this week's question from health on tomorrow's show. Email us, message us via Facebook, tweet at us on Twitter with your guest and topic suggestions or Tell us anything you'd like us to share on the show, and we'll likely read it here on air. If that's constructive or destructive criticism, we don't care. We'll likely share it with all of our listeners right here on air. Fred L.H. sent us some suggested reading on Ukraine. Fred writes, it appears that what Russia is trying to do is to negate the untenable aspects of the $5 billion coup d'etat in which the USA effectively overthrew the democratically elected Ukrainian government in 2014, this putsch was overseen by who he calls Queen Victoria Newland, who chose most of the ministers of the replacement Ukrainian government when she was, wasn't handing out trinkets to the crowds in Maidan. Fred then sends several links to Defend Democracy press stories at defenddemocracy.press, including an article by past guest Diana Johnstone titled U.S. Foreign Policy is a Cruel Sport. Bear baiting was long ago banned as inhumane, yet today a version is being practiced every day against whole nations on a gigantic international scale. Fred also sent a link to Putin's Donbass move threatens U.S. global don dominance by Kyle Anzalone and Will Porter and George Kennan warned NATO expansion would lead to this Mr. X would lead to this Mr. X is rolling in his grave as George Kennan was known and that article is by of all people David Stockman the director of the office of management and budget under President Ronald Reagan and finally he sent a link to Biden's CIA director doesn't believe Biden's story about Ukraine by Peter Beinart which is not what I was expecting Peter Beinart actually writing an article titled Biden's CIA director doesn't believe Biden's story about Ukraine. Kind of surprising. Fred sent one more link, and that was to a video on YouTube from the Gravel or Gravel Institute, uh, Mike Gravel, the late senator, about uh, American funding for the Azov Battalion. It explicitly condemns Russian propaganda that Ukraine is a neo-Nazi country. Fred ends by adding... Any simple explanation of Ukraine and the Russian situation is wrong. But you know that as well as anyone I know, Chuck. Hugs. Fred. Boris also sent us... That's awesome. Boris also sent us a Ukraine guest suggestion, as well as a comment on last week's conversation with Os Keys on artificial, artificial intelligence and mental health diagnoses. Boris writes, thank you for another excellent episode last week. I'm a psychologist working closely with medical providers and found pretty much everything your guests shared very much true and very much relevant. Boris, by the way, expect me, expect another email from me because... 
I'd really like to get your opinion on who we should have on to discuss this uh, topic further. Boris adds the topic of money cost was brought up peripherally, and I would love a more in-depth discussion in a future episode. Since the onset of COVID, most, most psychotherapists shifted to telehealth. With reduced overhead costs and increased profits, mental health suddenly appeared appealing to investors. For the past two years, we have seen an enormous amount of private equity money flowing towards mental health, with startups run by MBAs and marketers buying out private outpatient therapy practices wholesale. A whole host of extremely predictable problems ensure, or ensue when the uh, new owners begin to maximize profits and seek return on investment by hiring unlicensed, inexperienced mental health providers to see 35 to 40 patients per week, receiving minimal supervision, often from licensed psychologists out of state, providing often inadequate, sometimes harmful mental health services. More experienced, licensed mental health providers naturally gravitate away from the environment and towards smaller private practices that offer, often, uh, uh, offer higher pay and better quality of life. The catch is... In order for these practices to provide such benefits and stay profitable, they typically only accept select Blue Cross Blue Shield plans, which most patients are unable to afford and many don't even have access to. Adequate mental health services have always been a privilege rather than a right in this country, but have become ever more so during COVID, which is disturbing. And of course, the reason is money. And of course, nothing will be done about it because this is hell. Anyway, thank you for everything you do. If you want a more in-depth discussion of the situation in Ukraine and war in general from a leftist perspective, try the War Nerd Radio guys, Mark Ames and John Dolan, a.k.a. Gary Brecker. They were both involved in the exile newspaper in Russia in the 90s and early aughts. You can find them on Facebook. Their Facebook group is a good gathering place for relatively reliable non-media sources of information on all kinds of matters related to war and conflict around the world. Take care, Boris. Thanks, Boris, for the insight and kind words on our conversation with Os Keys, which I, I really enjoyed that discussion with us. It was just fantastic. As for Gary and Mark, they have been on our show in the past, actually dating back to, I think, around the late 1990s or early aughts. Gary, in fact, recently posted that he was wrong in predicting Putin would never invade Ukraine and has posted a special war nerd podcast on exactly why he got it wrong, which is pretty damn brave and really honest, which is something I always appreciate from Gary. Finally, we got a guest suggestion from Rebecca S., who writes, Hi, Chuck. First of all, thanks for all the work you, Alex, and the rest of the folks at This Is Hell do in producing the show. It makes living in this neoliberal hellscape less, well, hellish. Speaking of neoliberal hellscape, I have a guest suggestion. Brandon Absher. I was a commentator at an author meets critics panel on his latest book, The Rise of Neoliberal Philosophy, Human Capital, Profitable Knowledge, and the Love for Wisdom from Lexington Books, published back in August of 2021. It's a great book, and I think he would make an excellent guest. I'm including a brief paragraph summary at the end of this email and a link to the publisher's website if you want to learn more about his book. In any case, keep up the good work. This is how is at the top of my list when people ask me for recommendations, and I cannot thank you enough for everything that you do. Best, 
Rebecca. So here's the blurb that Rebecca included and mentioned within her email. The rise of neoliberal philosophy argues that philosophy as it exists institutionally has become neoliberal philosophy, acceding to the demands of neoliberal capitalism. Absher approaches academic philosophy from a non-essentialist historical and materialist perspective where philosophy is, as he puts it, shaped by political, economic, and cultural forces. The book traces the emergence of neoliberal philosophy through paradigm shifts in the university in the 20th century that happened in response to changing economic and social conditions extrinsic to the university and philosophy itself. Thus, the book is about not just philosophy, but knowledge production in the neoliberal university generally, where in the face of budget cuts and increasing increasing dependence on private funding, research is funded as a profit-making enterprise. Education is reconceived as job training and knowledge is commodified. Rebecca, that sounds awesome. And even though that book came out back in August of last year, I think we're going to be reaching out to Mr. Absher to have him on the show to discuss his book on neoliberalism. So thank you very much for that suggestion. If you have a guest or topic suggestion, would like to work as a board operator here in studio or join the crew remotely online or have anything you'd like to share with us, send it to Chuck at thisishell.com. And if you do, we will likely read it on air. Dan, do we know who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell? Yes, writer Hadas Tier will be on to talk about her article, Cryptocurrency Will Not Liberate Us for Dollars and Cents. I'm really looking forward to that conversation. She was on back in election week 2020 in the first week of November when we had her on to talk about her book on anarchy and what anarchy means. And uh, that was a fantastic conversation. And in 2020, for the very last time, we listed our favorite books of the year because I think that our focus should be on the interviews more generally instead of just the books because we've had some great interviews with people who have not written books who have written long reads and magazines and other periodicals and so we uh, shifted from that idea of having the best of uh, books as to the best of interviews and Hadass would have qualified for both but she was in our very last list in 2020 of our favorite books of the year and you should go back and listen to that interview Hadass Thier I believe that's T-H-I-E-R you can look it up at thisishell.com and uh, go back and listen to that art, that uh, interview because I found it absolutely fascinating especially for those of you who dismiss anarchy as just being nothing but chaos it really is enlightening and eye-opening. Thanks to our guest, writer, performer, and podcaster, Mary Jane Gibson, who posted the Rolling Stone article, Inside California's Cannabis Crisis. Mary Jane co-hosts the Weed and Grub podcast with comedian Mike Glazer. You can find Weed and Grub at weedandgrub.com. That, that's the podcast. You can find Weed and Grub podcast at weedandgrub.com. I don't know if you can actually find Weed and Grub at that site. Follow Mary Jane on Twitter at this is hell, or sorry, this is Mary Jane underscore. Find out more about Mary Jane at this is Mary And uh, I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Dan Hill. Thanks to Dan for producing. We told you we're not joking. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. No. Ah. My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller.
And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.